Hey gamers, welcome back to the podcast. I've just returned from a marathon trip of talks that took me from Bonn, Germany to Academy der Kunst in Berlin, all the way to Miami, Florida for Art Basel, back to back to back. In this episode, I'm speaking with New Models co-hosts Carly and Julian and New York-based artist Dina Yago at the Bundeskunsthalle in Bonn. Post-panel discussions at the Future of Critique conference, we set up some on-the-road gear at the artist residence attached to the museum and reflect on the state of legacy media and cultural institutions as they weather the onslaught of mimetic culture, political unrest, and eco-activism. Apologies for the audio quality on this one, but we are in a very echoey room that is literally part of the museum with empty walls. The episode is a high-intensity tank session that recaps our thoughts inspired by the conference thus far, and games out what scenarios we might expect to see in the near future. I'm your host, Joshua Citarella. I'm speaking with artists Dina Yago and New Models co-hosts Carly Busta and Lil Internet. Check them out at patreon.com slash newmodels. This is our After Hours Night at the Museum during the Future of Critique. Hearing the reverberation of the <laughs> safe house apartments of the Bundeskunsthalle. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we're here with hostages. Uh, no, we're here with hostages. <laughs> Who is in a safe house? Um, Dissidents. Informants. Whistleblowers. Whistleblowers. <laughs> yes. Uh, Dina Yego and Joshua Citarella. Dina and Josh, hi. 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 Good to Pleasure see you. Pleasure to be here. So, what are you all doing in Bun? What are we all doing in Bun? We are here for a conference called The Future of Critique for which uh, Carly and Julian yesterday (laughs) gave the keynote address. Dina and I were on a panel that evening called Memes versus Museums. Art (laughs) after Instagram? There was a subtitle. Yeah, there's a tagline attached to Art after Instagram. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, it's an interesting week that will be three days here in Bonn and then another three days in Berlin at Academy der Kunst. Mm -hmm. Where we continue this question of what is the future of critique, specifically in a cultural context. So we haven't prepared questions. Instead, we wanted to just share with Dina and Josh all together, Julian, to just decompress a little bit. What were you going to say? Well, there's one thing from your panel that I remember. Let me see who's on the panel. Our guests and a masked figure, Chen, from <laughs> Freeze. 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 Freeze Magazine. Freeze yeah. Magazine. Literally in a mask, if people yeah. haven't seen the live stream. Yeah. Yeah. Very anonymous. Yeah. He's about to rob a bank. Kanye West style. Yes. Yeah. Moderated yeah. by Gregor Kwok. Exactly. Who's an art historian and critic. I also remember the Art Critic Union, which I did I didn't not know existed. Know yeah. Apparently it's international, know. but... Hmm. Doesn't seem like they're very effective at getting people paid. That's <laughs> 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 yeah. my burn, sorry. Per union. Where does an art critic union put the wedge in? Like, what port do they block? <laughs> well, yeah, what's the material yeah. leverage? Exactly, yeah. what's telling me? Oh. And who's the scab? <laughs> who's the scab? <laughs> well, I guess just like Facebook commenters. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a really interesting slide in your guys' keynote where you kind of mapped out the pay-per-word devaluation since the 70s. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. We went from like $10 adjusted for inflation to $0.25 cents a word. <laughs> yes. I, it's, let's pretend the Guardian piece is 600 words. That math doesn't doesn't work in any world. Josh has earned his quarter a word for the Guardian. I have, yeah, yeah. Well, my stuff is usually on the shorter side, like a thousand to I think fifteen hundred max. 
I think one of the reasons why we've seen talent, particularly in the field of journalism, bleed to Substack is because when you write on your own platform, you get like 10x the revenue. Right. So it's, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to afford the time, literally to afford the time mm-hmm. to write for legacy publications. And there's a similar dynamic that's opening up for doing projects under art institutions. In a previous model, participating in institutional structures would pay you below market rate, but then you would be able to capture the value later. So if, say, for example, if you were a painter, you have a museum show, your following solo show at a gallery would then increase the prices. So you didn't directly earn revenue from participating in the museum show, but then you captured the value created by the museum show through the galleries. And what seems to be happening, I think part of the reason why we're invited here to talk about these things is that the amount of value generated by the institutions, and this is made visible through a lot of the analytics of various, uh, some of them are Web3, but some of them are just investing in modernist masterworks through fractional ownership where you own like, you know, uh, a share of a Picasso or something like that. Podcast ads for that all the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think Masterworks is the name of one. Yeah, yeah. And even in the publicly visible data, it's just increasingly clear that the value generated by museums is eroding over time. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So what you get at the end of this trajectory is like total ANCAP liquidity Mm -hmm. where there's just like free floating assets. Like it doesn't require institutional mediators, which maybe sounds for a lot of people who come from like uh, left-wing backgrounds or countercultural backgrounds, like, yeah, getting rid of the corrupt gatekeepers, but you're actually talking about removing curators and removing context and all the things that make culture enriching. So, yeah. Destroying the art critics union. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that it's worth kind of looking at how and why some of these Web3 based organizations like Outland or Zora or FWB are investing so much in editorial, in Outland specifically, like another form of art criticism, which I guess functions as the conceptual buttressing of the project that they're doing and contextualizing new technologies and new forms. Yeah, they, they really you stake say out what Outland is, just in case anyone's not aware. Uh, yeah, uh, how to describe it? It's, I guess I would say it's a publication foremost, right? Uh, yeah, Brian Drakor wrote mm-hmm. a, a great piece recently about how to understand art criticism. They've published a lot of negative pieces as well. Is yeah, it more than just a publication also? Should there's also a residency and they do NFT sales. They do commissions, it's, it's maybe? It's part of a platform also. Yeah. And this yeah. started by Brian Drakor, who has a history in the art world. Is that right? Chris or, Liu. Oh, Chris also. Liu. Chris Liu mm-hmm. and Brian together. Okay. <laughs> but it has, like, it does have one foot in the art world. So yes. it's coming, it's not like force memed art that comes from it's a like boardroom. It's like the non crass version right. of NFT art that yeah. is palatable to a kind of legacy art institution. Totally. Yeah. And is it palatable to crypto? Yeah, I don't know. It kind of becomes that third culture situation yeah. where the function of criticism is to validate the institution. And yeah. it's, it's not really doing what I'd say that a lot of the audience members of this conference you know, might aim to think of themselves as, as being this sort of outside objective critical mm. force. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I was listening to a talk by... Ben Davis, who writes for Artnet mm-hmm. News, he's the national art critic over there. And he said that even considering criticism purely as a value add to the market price of painting, for example, if there's a positive review, you should sell a bunch more paintings. Mm-hmm. If there's a negative review, less people will buy the paintings. That's the most impoverished definition of art criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Even that is no longer clear. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, I would even go further and say that for maybe the past at least two, three decades, the joke, of course, is it doesn't matter if the criticism is good or bad. All that mm-hmm. matters is that your show got reviewed. But that doesn't even matter anymore. The fact that your show got reviewed doesn't mean it's more likely to sell or not sell. Carly, I have a question for you because I was thinking about that diagram of the devaluation between, is it 1970 to 2010? I mean, I'm taking this from Malcolm Harris' article that he wrote on Medium a couple years ago and then fact-checked some more recent between 2015 and 2022 pays. I mean, I'm sure there are certain vanity publications, especially what we were calling Legacy Media Plus, which are magazines, so they take the format of legacy media, but they're really lost leaders for a brand, right? right. Which we see a lot of. That's a model. I mean, it's not a bad model, too. It's, it's like, also the outland model a bit. It's right. So they have a business, and mm-hmm. then they have this criticism arm. Right. I mean, it's really like... It's the, like Essence. It's like or Essence, or, I mean, now basically O32C. High yeah. Or High Society, right. I mean, I'm all for that model. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Why was I saying that? I feel like my brain's only half well, working. I was, I was asking about... Um, um, oh, how much of that devaluation yeah. is because, well, there's more competition and it's easier to publish. And I feel like the total number of reviews that come out, I can't possibly read all of them. So I see a lot of them as a headline and it's like, oh, good for that person that got the mm-hmm. review. Yeah. But uh, I, I can't dedicate the time to read right. everything. So I wonder just on the supply side, is part of that devaluation just because there's so much written. Like the space is so much noisier than it was in the 1960s and 70s. Definitely as compared to the 1960s. That was like post-war, well-funded. But since the aughts, I mean, I did reviews at Art Forum for several years and I very often felt like we were publishing into the void when it came to the reviews. The artists would read it and this is 2010, right? Mm -hmm. So this is before the J-curve up of like social media being the primary place. If I can just make a point about the Legacy Plus is that if you have something like Essence and I don't know exactly how they're structuring this but if you're paying a writer out of what is ostensibly a marketing budget Mm -hmm. there is money in a different form it's not necessarily like just editorial it's like advertorial yeah I mean it's a different funding structure that just ensures that people are getting like paid better than they're getting paid at the Guardian absolutely one of you said in your talk made the connection between critics being trend forecasters was it you Josh and I, that sounds I like something know. either of us might say. Yeah, <laughs> in, sure. in that nobody believes it's a real job. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I tried explaining that to your parents. It's, yeah. yeah, difficult. One of you did say it, but <laughs> were we talking about like hedging positions that are maybe the consensus is against you at the moment, but you know the analysis is going to be correct in the future? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I mean, I think of a lot of discourse as like a prediction market, more or less, where Dina's article from Eflux is timestamped 2018, and then reading it in advance of the discussion you know, yesterday, four years since it was published, is like, wow, this was so ahead of the clear trajectory that was going to be played out. So I think having an analysis that has like strong predictive capacity Mm -hmm. is a similar kind of game. If the way that we value things, one of the reasons why we put them into institutions is that something had predictive potential or seemed ahead of its time despite the consensus uh, of everybody at the moment. Right. I mean, when I was writing that piece, which is about the experientialization of museums and the kind of funhouse, yeah, there's a Carson Haller slide in this museum. They're very much like alive (laughs) and well and get the hordes. But the only other person who was writing about that at the time was Ben Davis. 
Mm. Yes, the only other person who was writing wolf. about yeah, yeah, meow wolf or museum of ice cream or any of these things, which like are the model for getting the foot traffic for like having this sort of unpaid labor of posting <laughs> the institution <laughs> <Please. right laughs> on the social media. You know, like that's the model. And I think in 2018, it was just more of like an emerging signal. But actually, on that question of museums, I mean, your panel was titled "Memes versus Museums," and you very oh, quickly Lord. were like that dichotomy doesn't make sense. I think you put it, museums are literally meme factories. I mean, the Mona Lisa, the Van Gogh sunflowers, Jericho's wrapped in the Medusa. Thanks to the museum, that becomes a postage stamp that gets, you know, transported onto umbrellas and tote bags, etc. I really appreciated, Dina, what you were talking about of the recognition value of objects that the museums hold and their relationship to capturing that value or who benefits from the meme value that museums generate. And why do you think maybe museums have not acted on capturing some of that value? I think maybe just to take a step back, like when I was starting to think about these things, I was actually working for a cultural institution in LA doing a rebranding project on like the eve of their centennial. Uh-huh. And they had uh, you know, done all of this audience research and come up with this cultural consumer that was their target younger audience. And all of the insights that those were based around were the fact that like, oh yeah, they want to go to like a food truck fair just as much as they want to go to the Broad or and, like take a <laughs> selfie with the Coons or the Kusama or whatever. And then it was just this sort of like flattening of cultural consumption facilitated by Instagram or social media platforms. And I think that there's like, from a museum's perspective, that all sounds very gauche and like collapsing of taste and democratizing maybe to a point where it's not helpful for upholding the values and reasons why these museums exist. But then they were also dealing with like a very real crisis of lagging numbers Mm -hmm. and needing to get more people in and realizing that like Instagram, you know, for this kind of more zoomed out, you know, maybe not that invested in like the critical discourse surrounding art, were attending the museums for the step and repeat, for mm. the meme, like the amount of people who yeah. take their Tinder photos in like front of the lights <laughs> in at LACMA uh-huh. or like under the Michael Heiser or whatever. Uh-huh. Like it just kind of became this social capital to be shared and like posted on Instagram. So I think something happened around like 2018 where they were like, Museums are in crisis, they need to get more people in, so they start doing these blockbuster shows that are step and repeats. Uh-huh. They're content Basically, yeah. And I think that that acknowledgement, while maybe not made explicit, is like the driving force for a lot of these. It's good for the accounts, it's like good metrics. Right. But there's still a kind of value that's outside of the museum that's not being recuperated. I mean, Mm -hmm. we were talking a little bit before this that oftentimes the IP is going back to an artist foundation, not to the museum. So the museum is still the custodian of this work, but they're not like the shareholder of the value. Which is, I think, why we're seeing like with the Met and the MoMA, you know, going full hype beast and making their logo the brand. I mean, I kind of want to game theory out what happens to museums next. Josh, you made the a good point during your talk that now that we're seeing direct actions happening in museums where people are using these highly mimetically valued paintings as a substrate for their action because it makes their action go viral. Game theory out to me how the museum administration starts using these kinds of events. Yeah, I mean, we've all been watching this thing unfold where there's activists in museums which are 
staging uh, stunts that appear to destroy the artwork. They glue themselves to the frame or to the wall and then they make a statement about fossil fuels and things like this. I think that we're watching a period in which art in its transformation into becoming purely a financial asset, which is untethered to any critical discourse. If we extrapolate out this curve of increasing political instability, increasing parts per million of carbon up in the atmosphere, institutions coming under attack from activists, you know, there's an increasing frequency of this happening. And I see a possibility where museums are going to be under such pressure that they will have to close to the public to protect their artworks. Mm. And then this will become the final nail in the coffin for many museum mission statements, which is to serve a broader public. Yeah, I see these things untethering through this process, right? And this, right. this could be used as the rationale. So this maybe opens up very interesting things for like, when a museum seeks to serve a public, they often have to justify their programming or their future programming based on the quantitative analytics of social media, right. which provides very, very different affordances to the type of work that excels in those spaces, obviously. Uh, museums are quite different than what you see in your feed on Instagram. But I'm sympathetic to some degree. I think a lot of the climate proposals from many of these activists are just gravely mistaken on certain important fronts. But oftentimes, political groups that are radical end up doing the dirty work yeah. of, of another faction of the ruling class that's having this dispute at the moment. And yeah, it could it could create a very interesting landscape in the next few years. I mean, I, th that's pretty like extreme doom casting, but I see, you know, the logic there, like there was a series of vandalisms of Poussin paintings that were mm -hmm. successful. It's like a guy spray painted and maybe cut through one. But yeah, I guess it's like, what is the volume of these protests that would have to occur in order for this like fortressing of the museum? Was it also climate activism? No, no, I think it was somebody, It was this was like years ago. Mm. Yeah. Right. Well, imagine a situation in which there's increasing political desperation mm -hmm. uh, and something that's shocking about these attacks or attempts to destroy artworks is that they're incredibly valuable and in most cases the museum holds a valuable piece of culture in the public's trust, mm -hmm. right? And in the context of Europe, many of the national galleries were formed, if you trace back the history, I'm paraphrasing Mike Pepe on this, but many of these national galleries were formed to house the collection after overthrowing the monarchy, mm. right? So in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, what do you do with these incredible pieces of culture? Like, does everybody, every peasant get a painting that used to belong to the king? Like, you can't, you can't practically do that. So they build a giant house, and although they belong to the public, the museum holds them in the public's trust. But if you need to capture attention, there's increasing desperation on social media, there's very little you can do in terms of political organization, and so there are pretty clear attentional incentives to go to a place in public and destroy something immensely valuable to then make a statement, right. right? And so the trajectory that I'm seeing is that, you know, maybe it starts with like splashing tomato soup on something that's safely behind glass, it mm -hmm. doesn't really damage it, but you can only do that so many times before mm -hmm. people see, oh, I, I already yeah. know it's behind glass. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about this. something like a school shooting. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a certain way, it's a similar energy that's like a, a fantasy of somehow violating the public sphere. I mean, not to put 
death of children on the same level of, you know, soup on a painting. But in some way, there's something similar to that logic, a mystic media event. The more you see it, the less shocking it is. So you really do need to up the ante each time. Mm -hmm. you I know? think that, like, on the panel yesterday, what we were then speculating was that it might be the incentive for museums to, like, actually invest and figure out the internet. Like, if they do, would mm -hmm. want to continue being stewards in the public trust, like, would they actually make good online programming? Well, that's, that's the thing where it gets curious, because yeah. if you abide by the quantitative metrics of social media, then like serving the public's trust, YouTube is doing a much better mm -hmm. job than the museum, uh -huh. you know? And then like this, you're gonna see what, I don't know, people like doing food challenges and stuff. And that, <laughs> yeah. that would be like the extent of culture. But, but it would just become like public broadcasting or something, right? Like PBS or it's C-SPAN. It's, yeah, because, I mean, the whole point of the museum, I mean, it's almost like a church-like building, right? It's sacredness that's supposed to be imbued in the space and the architecture and the size and scope. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very similar to, like, the pilgrimages, where people would bring, like, a shiny piece of pewter and get the light from the clear story windows to reflect onto their faces and then onto the Virgin, and they would have this literal enlightenment. That's a similar thing, going to a painting that you know is iconic and taking your photograph in front of it and having that kind of communion with these artworks that you know are linked to a larger fabric of human history. There's like a feeling of meaning-making. I mean, that was maybe an older sense of it. I wonder if that is even still true. I mean, I think that this is something that we cycled around yesterday was also just the museum is real estate. I think people Definitely. are... Yeah doing mm. these protests in this physical space that has all of these connotations around accrued value and elitism and whatever, mm -hmm. but it also is this like piece of real estate and totally. like, what's going to happen to the museum while well, we're already kind of seeing it, they're venues in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, one could imagine a world where even having access to certain parts of the museum at all, not just like in private, but like at all will be a privilege mm -hmm. that you have and you have to be vetted to see them. Like the Boros in Berlin, you have to sign up for it tour in advance. Mm -hmm. You're not really vetted, but you could imagine there being a lot more restriction. Political screening. Like, yeah, like going to the, the right tag. I oh think it's gosh. maybe also worth returning to this doom casting conversation that we were having. If, you know, it gets to become passe to throw super mashed potatoes or whatever at art, we did say that we would like to see some soup thrown inside of an infinity mirror room. Yeah, yeah, the summer filled with tomato soup. soup. We're getting squeegeed. So Satisfying. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, a maybe logical next step, which we all were discussing, was super gluing yourself to a celebrity. <laughs> That's, That's true. Right. And, you know, who is the Van Gogh 1888 sunflowers of celebrities? Tom Hanks, obviously. It's very true. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. The, People yeah, love Tom Hanks. we reached consensus on that yeah. very quickly. Especially in the moment of, like, red-blue culture wars. Like, I mean, everyone kind of abstractly values a painting, and we hold Tom Hanks in the public's trust. Yeah. Right? Like he's, he's valuable to everyone, yeah. and yeah, people would be really upset. But it's difficult to play this game with different types of celebrities because everything is so divided now that mm. you would only get like 50% of the audience that would be like, oh no, not uh, so-and-so. Right. And then the other half would be like, yeah, fuck that guy. Totally. <laughs> so Tom Hanks is unanimously loved. Super gluing yourself to oil execs, too. Would, would, would be, you have to you escalate to Tom Hanks. You, yeah, right. you can even start with oil execs. It would be harder to access them. I'm guessing. Like, do you think uh, Tom Hanks yeah. has a bodyguard? Yeah, he's like yeah. a group in Chris's. Yeah. He's just like some waiter. You just have to <laughs> be able to see the reservations of the night, you know? <laughs> Capitol Grill. 
know? Yeah, I mean, I think there needs to be like, I mean, an underground uh, radical network of waiters, though, would be really that That's movie? kind of a good like a movie. movie. Yeah, yeah. that's how the movie's been made. Like, is isn't that the Joker? Speaking of the Joker, we did also, because we talked about the school shooting thing, hor- horrific events that you see happen on social media that then grab people's attention. And I was remembering that in the original, the Michael Keaton Batmans, where Goofy Jack Len. Nicholson is the Joker, it's like the climax of the movie when the Joker is, is taking over Gotham or what have you. Uh, he's got his whole crew. They set up the boombox and <laughs> Julian reminded me they're playing <laughs> Prince on the boombox. But they go to the museum and then they destroy all the paintings. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Yeah, it's, it's a very anti-social yeah. type of act mm-hmm. to like destroy something that everybody loves to like right. just wanting to see the world burn type right. of act. Right, right, right. I mean, it is interesting because the kind of art criticism that is discussed during this conference, I mean, it does feel like it's somewhat historically bound. But to think about this wider public using the iconicity of art as a way to levy some kind of critique. But it's interesting to see art be valued by the public in this sense. Mm-hmm. Like these yeah. are icons that we mm-hmm. do think people hold dear or that do somehow hold our society together. It's, it's kind of like Tom Hanks. Like I don't want to sit down and watch a Tom Hanks movie yeah. right now, but like I want to know that his movies are somewhere safe. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's <laughs> how people feel about yeah. the Monet Flowers yeah, or I whatever. Think you're right. But I think that whatever the protesters' objectives of doing this, it's like they are doing this because they think that the artwork is inert and that people's right. attention should be diverted from looking at the sunflowers or the Mona Lisa or whatever mm-hmm. to stopping oil. That's a good point. Just like Tom Hanks is essentially inert. It's not Kanye we shouldn't, we shouldn't be paying attention to Tom Hanks' yeah. quotes. Dina, I have a question, if, if you can share this, but when consulting with museums, cultural institutions, and they want to reach an audience and they've got to compete with like the food truck festival. What are the analytics that they look at? Like, are they scraping posts from Instagram or are they looking at ticket sales? Or I guess the thing that we were trying to forecast is like, yeah, because the worst case scenario is that you have to justify your museum programming by some quantitative metric on YouTube where the number of people who like watch the conference is going to determine next year's budget because, oh, we didn't Mm -hmm. reach X audience, Mm -hmm. so we're going to scale down the funding proportionally. And then what you get is like the museum saying like, uh, watch this panel discussion about one weird trick about how you can uh, get a boner pill or something. <laughs> you know, you have to cater to the preferences of the platform. So where are they getting the numbers to even make these comparisons to then determine how the museum provisions itself and its different departments? So there are a bunch of different channels of varying layers of like soft science. One would be utilizing a social listening tool and building out, you know, for instance, I was living in LA at the time that I was doing this specific project, building out an audience that is bracketed by location and demographic and interests. And it's like, if they are interested in art, what else are they interested in? Figuring out what these like word cloud affinities are. Mm -hmm. And they kind of build out an audience base and are like, okay, here is the volume. Like here's however many million people we think our content, our programming, whatever is relevant towards. So that's one way. There's a bunch of different tools. It's kind of like a Cambridge Analytica where it's like, if you like Hello Kitty, you probably vote for the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, and then another one, which is like the very qualitative soft science, is basically like hiring a firm that does a series of focus groups. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just doing qualitative research. Okay. 
But the social listening, which has changed drastically since Cambridge Analytica and also since each individual platform has taken a lot of that data in-house and charged for it, like that's a huge revenue stream for Facebook. Mm-hmm. But back in 2017, you could kind of fire hose all of the analytics from so different you, platforms. So you are to some degree looking at hashtags and geotags and posts exactly. on social media, but mm-hmm. that might be not 100% of how they determine the decisions, but it has some weighted value. Mm-hmm. Is it like half or is it like 10% or I guess I'm just curious about like how, how important down. those things yeah. are to people. I think that there is still like curatorial autonomy, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. But when you're talking about like branding an institution Mm -hmm. and figuring out, you know, like, are we going to have food truck Tuesdays because that's what young people like? Oh, sure, sure. That kind of thing is informed by market research. Yeah. I mean, I'm not totally opposed to some of these things. And I think a level of, like, ticket sales, public Mm -hmm. attendance is an important aspect. You know, there are drawbacks to things that are purely crowdfunded and drawbacks to things that are purely philanthropic. And so, like, a mix of those things can be the countervailing forces that produces a good program that is engaging to a public. I'd say it's more like amenities. Mm. Amenities. those, Those kinds of programs and ancillary aspects of an arts institution or cultural institution are what are being like devised up out of a marketing team. Hmm. Interesting. It's almost then like a hotel logic to it. Exactly. Like, well, you used to just have the cafe and mm-hmm. the gift shop and, you know, the museum's like, well, we can actually get a star's chef and make it really great and people will come. And now yeah. that logic has been extended to food trucks and mm-hmm. whatever other yoga. But question, what about the results, the ROI metrics that I imagine they must also ask for? Are there exit surveys? Do they incentivize people to, I don't know, like how do they I mean, decide? A lot of them use social metrics. They do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't care that they're, I mean, I imagine in the past, like say the Whitney Museum circa 1960, of course, cared about reaching the public, but it also very much cared about piquing the interest of some art elite. But like now do they care about some, is there even some art say, elite they would care about? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the machinations of yes. these things, like worked with institutions and clients as like an external consultant. But I would say that it's like in a pretty plain way saying like, oh, we had this thing that went viral. We're culturally relevant. We're not a dusty ass institution. Mm-hmm. And that is appealing to board members mm-hmm. and whomever else, even if it's not like a financially quantifiable thing. Got it. I think proving like some level of cultural engagement and relevance mm-hmm. is like worth its weight. I, I won't share the name of this museum, but it's a regional museum. It's in like, we'll say like flyover country mm-hmm. to be very general about it. but. Their press strategy is to invite all the influencers from this regional city in hopes that they show up mm-hmm. to the opening to then Instagram, tweet, huh. like share this stuff. And that's part of their marketing strategy. So, But I, I imagine the person who has to do this outreach just like white knuckle gripping the table. It's like, if we don't increase the total number of influencers <laughs> that come to our openings, <laughs> this whole department's going to go under. And this is also hotel logic, yeah. too. It's like kind of room gifting for influencers is a part of the campaign. Do you think that will continue to be true as social media fractures? You guys kind of made this comment about advisors Mm -hmm. wanting to have a Telegram chat with their collectors versus doing everything in public on Instagram. Definitely. Which I'm not 
you know, familiar or visible. It's really it's that, WhatsApp, I think, is WhatsApp. the, the yeah, finer what, WhatsApp, chat. probably, yeah. yeah. Or just whatever is, like, native to that particular user. I mean, actually, this is something that, like, Hildy, Jerry Gagoshin talked about. I was just asking her, like, how are these markets made for these artists that, like, I have very little connection to and I can't really see what would be valuable on a surface level or in relation to some canon or scene or any of the mm-hmm. traditional ways that one would imagine well, they really value. haven't been critically engaged with either, like, in a arts journal or something. Right. And like, you know, we know the zombie formalism, you know, Flipper, Simkovitz, and it's kind of like that, but she's like, it's literally five guys moneyballing each other with like a hot art advisor. I hope this is right. Kilda, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's like a libidinal connection to the art advisor who always stands in is like, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost only fans, but it's not quite. And like, they want something that's not available on social media. Isabel Grawl recently wrote about how paintings, their valuation is affected by the number of likes they get on Instagram and I'm like I just don't know that that's actually true yeah, I, I think by the time some things hit that saturation it's already like normy, like the mass public it's not cool it doesn't have like I don't think that's where the market is made although you can imagine it being the case where like a painting that has like a ton of visibility a lot really high social media metrics in the west might be really desirable for a collector from the east sure I mean this is not every single situation but I will say that like a lot of the galleries also though galleries that were started by like you know people who maybe are boomer gen x and always had a bit of an aversion to social media their relationships with their collectors are personal and the fact that they can give like premier access to their collectors for something that's not on social media yet is so much more valuable than like advertising that it exists on social media it just doesn't work you're creating a metagame and a sense of exclusivity and like and also it's just like not stressful and it's like it's like very it's like so mids it's like shopping at the mall versus like shopping like you know (laughs) like you know in a back room where someone you know like gives you full access or shopping for couture or something so yeah I think that's a dark forest and I think there's this mids game that legacy media is very much wrapped up in or Um, mode game well, you mode. think of like mean, median, and mode, right? Oh, there's uh-huh. the average, and then there's the point in the very middle, and the mode is the one that occurs the most times. Uh huh. Right, and I uh-huh. think uh, oftentimes we just call things like mid, or like as Schumann Bissar called it, like the hundredocracy, yeah, the tyranny of the average, right? right? But I mean, you look at the way Netflix you know decides what to air what movies to fund or whatever and they're plotting modes yeah like they're plotting where like these huge big data plots of viewers and wherever there's the most individuals with this particular taste that they know are going to like something that's what they target yeah i think it's really like yeah tyranny of the mode more than anything else i mean have you dina in your consulting work have you had any pushback against like a social analytics mid like is there any discussion of that or how does that analysis track I mean, I haven't really been doing this work That's true. in years, okay. right. so I guess my experience is a little bit outdated, but I have consistently tried to involve smaller artists or different kind of special projects that have tried to argue for the value of a small niche influential community versus just like casting out for the broadest common mm-hmm. like cultural consumer. And it's very difficult to get through to that side. But I feel like things have changed so much now because in marketing or whatever, this shift towards working with like niche influencers 
you know, I'd say maybe host fire festival. Uh-huh, right. Mm. Just realizing that like people, you know, like Logan and Jake Paul are like actually liabilities mm. and that it's better to give less money to more people. Mm-hmm. It's like hedging yeah. the risk. It is, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's this one really bizarre example of metrics gone wrong that we used in our talk also, the Artnet Top 300, it lists the artists by most clicks and the top two popular artists according to Artnet every month for like the past few years has been Jock Sturgis and David Hamilton who are these <laughs> photographers from the 80s who took these Vaseline lens photographs of nude like barely adolescent girls and basically because they were validated in the 80s by the fine art community it's basically the only like legal child porn on the internet and so there's a top of artnet 300. And Sally Man is number three. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then number four is Diane Arbus. Then and then Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Child porn with yeah. Andy Warhol. Yeah. But I guess it's just that, what is it, Goodhart's Law, or there's a couple of laws that kind of talk about when you base a decision off of a metric, like the metric either dominates or everything else becomes mm-hmm. invisibilized yeah. or generates its own toxic loops. But that's yeah. a really great example of the problem with judging things just on metrics of popularity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, like, I was doing some of this, like, branding work, you know, five plus years ago. And, like, the, the Eflux essays that sort of came out of that were in a large way, like my exit from having any desire to uh-huh. work on them whatsoever because I just kept kind of running up, ran up into this like impossibility of doing anything interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. the algorithm always wins, you know? Right. It was really like, yeah. I mean, I really feel like if there's a talk about criticism, this is this question. It's like, how do you overcome that? Or how do you create a world where you can be insulated from the pressure of the algorithm and that's okay? I mean, I did love this one. Um, I think he is maybe the publisher or the, yeah, I think the publisher of Mercure, which is a German cultural publication. He's like, our circulation is about 3,000. We have a print issue and we're fine with that. So they basically have a dark forest in print. Mm. And they're just like, that's okay. And I, I really appreciated that. They're like, we're legacy media, but we know our audience and this is our reach. And like, we're not trying to scale. I mean, yeah, you, you know, know, actually I was just, I was working on a naming project for an arts institution and they were similarly going through a shift. And when asked, were they trying to go for the more kind of spectacular visitor inundation? And they yes. just said no, that they just wanted like a small quality public and doubling down on their dedication to that, which is more, yeah, it's like the art world version of Dark yeah. Wars. It's great. I mean, I think that people are, it, Right, because people are going to get bored of like museum yeah. of ice cream. People, I mean, there will be an interesting moment, as you noted, you know, people will just start attacking the experiential installations because that actually will be the <laughs> most mediagenic, like, you know, yeah. like, oh, destroy that. Exactly, exactly. But then at a certain point, it is boring. I'm trying to yeah. think my way through this. I haven't fully workshopped this one. But I'm thinking about how different organizations, whether it's a group of people doing like a magazine or a YouTube channel or a museum or whatever, like people who produce culture, there's different ways of monetizing that work. And I'm coming to like what makes a museum or like a niche inward facing publication for experts important because you have to justify the 
tremendous amount of resources that gets poured into a magazine that only re reaches 3,000 yeah. people, right? So just, I'm going to try and sketch this out and hopefully it tracks. But uh, we could say like crowdfunding is like a Vox Populi where you get these big populist narratives and YouTube does a really good job of that. Then you see things like Trumpian populism or Sanders populism and there's like narratives that are not in the mainstream, but crowdfunding facilitates certain things. But they're also very low res, like it's a very simple narrative that can get transmitted between that many people. And then there's another model of bootstrapping your own capital, which we might analogize to being like a crypto web three yeah. social token type of thing where all of us, we're really invested in this thing and then we think it's going to be important. And then you like hold this thing that gets really valuable later, right? That's a way to resource uh, yeah. an organization of people. And then there's this other version that requires philanthropy. that can't be bootstrapped. It can't be crowdfunded. And I think that's more or less what museums and art publications are supposed to be doing. This is like a think tank type of structure. Mm -hmm. But so what would you do if you were the donor of a think tank and they produced insights that didn't have predictive capacity? Mm -hmm. You would fire the think yeah, tank. Yeah, totally. And so I think we're kind of <laughs> at a moment in the art world where like the predictions that a lot of people made and the discussions that are going on there are just not tracking to the world that's happening elsewhere. Yeah. And so there's this is going to get me fucking kicked out of the conference. This is not a good track to be on. But I, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone explicitly involved here. But I think broadly the crisis in the art world is that Museums are not um, feeling like the work that comes out of it is being proved relevant like five to ten years later. And so they're kind of struggling with that. And one of the hazards is that, okay, well, we can look to the platforms as a way of measuring our engagement mm -hmm. with the public. But then you're in the other model where it's like, that's a crowdfunding model. That's not what right. philanthropy is supposed to do. Great point. Right. So uh, we need some type of countervailing influence, something to shape the space where like the work that is produced in museums, when you look at this in like 2025, 2030, 2040, you'd be like, damn, that thing was really important and it aged very well. Yeah. You know, that's just like Dina's essay is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but uh, broadly speaking, a lot of the stuff that's happening in museums is just not aging well. I think that that was kind of the question that came up at the end of our panel, which was like very solutions based of like, well, what are museums supposed to do? And then I was kind of trying to think through examples of you know, institutions that are like providing a, a very much needed like material resource, whether or not that be like space to produce work, space for discourse or whatever. I mean, I'm thinking about the like rhizome for leanies. Yeah, yeah. No, those were great. Yeah, those, those were excellent. That was Rip. a gr great Rip. job. Yeah. Um, or, you know, even just like actually being able to fund artist projects and not relying on private galleries to produce museum works. That's a big thing. That's very true. Yeah. Or do the, do the other thing where it's like the museum can actually function as like the thing that museums do, be the archive. Yeah. You know, be the holder of knowledge, be the one who's like actually investing in the preservation of work that's happening outside of the institution. Yeah, I mean, Rhizome is, of course, put a lot of funds towards archiving net art, and that's a super important thing. But I think that's completely distinct from archiving the cultural production that has happened, especially since, let's say, K-Hole Dis. Let's say there's mm -hmm. like a fundamental pivot that happens there. And actually, we have to wrap up soon, but maybe as a way we have of... To go eat a, we, we have to, we're going to go eat some Chinese food on a on boat, a boat. Yeah. in the former capital of West Germany. 
But also a point of clarification from our last recording with Josh that has received a lot of feedback. I'll preface it with on our last recording a month or so ago, Rachel Rawson also joined us. We were talking about the number of post-net shows that were happening in Berlin institutions this fall and how that was remarkable because these institutions, they were not being filled by younger artists. There seemed to not be a generation after us at the institutions, the galleries were tapping. Instead, they were like pretty much unanimously showing post-net art. Many people responded, you don't think there's other things happening after post-net? To which we say, no, of course there's stuff happening. <laughs> and in fact, I think we should just clarify that this was a pivot point. Dis and Cahill were a pivot point. And maybe to join this question of what museums maybe need to archive or what kind of content they need to start looking at, can I point this to you, Dina? Yeah, I mean, I think that the response to that was like, when, when I was coming up, we were looking to people just in micro-generation, older than myself, who were doing great for themselves and zombie formalism and then their markets completely tanked and they all went to coding boot camps. Yeah. You know, mass yeah. generalization there. Yeah. But we had like a, a model preceding ours or, or mine that was attractive to make me feel like being an artist was the way to go. Whereas I think that graduating the recession, like people that are slightly younger than us, like see all of us struggling and just like patchworking five different jobs and figuring out how to like maintain some sort of critical art practice while not like jumping off a bridge or something. Yeah. And you know, at the time that I was doing K-Hole, we were sharing the studio with Eckhaus Lada who had this kind of amazing school of interns that carried on and all started their own labels like Gauntlet Chang and Vicara and all are doing like amazingly interesting work but have absolutely like no interest in making art. Yeah. And or something like Montez Press Radio which is like I think the most interesting cultural social practice that's happening in New York right now. You know, it's like they're really more focused on like the radio or something right. or Cafe Forgot or something people that are working in food or people that are working in music. It's like art is just not like the most attractive place to be right now. It's right. not a paradigm that works. It's broken. Exactly. <laughs> we're, all, right. we're all podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we don't provide a, like an attractive model to strive towards. Yes, and it's not aspirational whatsoever. Right, and there's say. not, I mean, maybe with the exception of, I mean, DNR and new models, there is a place, there is a scene to some degree, even if it's oftentimes virtual. But Cafe Forgot literally dimes the restaurant, like that practice. Those are social practices. And there used to be a scene in the aughts that just totally evaporated. Mm-hmm. And right. so, yeah. Yeah, I still make art. Though. Right. It's like for God knows what reason, I've had conversations with like Andrew Norman Wilson about this or there is like a worm in my brain you know (laughs) (laughs) has made this like my chosen path but it is because there is community there for me there's like space for criticality and there's like embracing complexity right yeah, so. and maybe it's fine to work on that scale. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we also have to point out for these examples, say like uh, having a fashion brand or having like a restaurant, although it's expensive to buy like a $200 shirt is much more affordable than a $10,000 painting. Absolutely. And it signals right. belonging. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think that part of what evaporated was that as art became a financial asset, it was not affordable by most of the audience that sees it. And so, yeah, these things become, you know, more and more unsustainable. I've also, I've written about this a bit, but I think the turn towards the material widget is a Mm -hmm. response to the dematerialization of 
our content and social lives. Mm -hmm. So there's something that in this sort of like dematerialized version of cultural capitalism, making a ceramic candle holder feels pure in mm -hmm. some way. Like all of these bedroom brands are responding to that. That makes a ton of sense. What is it? What is that practice? You know, while it might feel like tactile and connected and rooted and all of that, it's still being exchanged and sold through Instagram. <laughs> That's also true. But I was also thinking, Josh, to your point about how, you know, a painting may start at 10K, but like a $200 shirt, while expensive, is something you might buy one a year. And there was this feeling when we were in the art world and paintings are $10,000 or more that we were always this kind of child and the collector was like the parent and you get invited to the gallery dinner because they wanted to foster a social scene and that was really nice but it wasn't vandalizing and you felt like you didn't really have any purchasing power any you couldn't participate in the economy of it in any real way except for through sign value of course this is when people still believed in the meritocracy of these systems and if you just showed up to enough dinners and wrote enough pieces that you'd finally become a professor who knows what but now buying fashion spending money on brunch is like no I have the power to participate economically in this as well like giving it to somebody who is just one step away it feels like a local economy just, or is that true or just no? to be yeah. the conservative shithead at the table yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have to stake out the contrarian thing here because yes it's uh, meaningful to participate in buying something that is relatively affordable to the audience that we where it's expensive but you can get one a year right. like that's, that's a meaningful participation but there is something about the philanthropic model when the paintings are super expensive that it creates longer timelines within mm. which you can work and so I think if for whatever degree soft power is shaping the political crisis that's unfolding, I think that we need properly resourced intellectual think tanks to like snake through that labyrinth and unravel whatever it is that culture seems to be doing to exacerbate the political situation. Because these things function on like seasonal timeframes in fashion and in restaurants. So if you do sell the $10,000 painting, you can like take the next month to really think about what you're going to do mm -hmm. next. Mm -hmm. And some of the other timelines, as the price point gets down, the timelines start to shrink. And when you get to podcasting, when it's $5, <laughs> the timeline is a week. Seven days. Right? Yeah. So, so kind of what happens is like we're doing it a little bit right now. Like the content itself turns into vlogging it turns into like well we're going to this conference and we'll talk about going to the conference <laughs> but like the degree out that you can start to think about like what is like the big macro shift that needs to happen as a price point sinks the time frame dilates and so uh, not to defend all of the guys on telegram that boost you know a painter's first show to then flip it later or all this stuff that's I think probably in some ways just straight up criminal but, <laughs> but there is yeah. something important about like having big donors for a benevolent cause that like gives people a year to th really think about a problem in a deep way. Maybe mm -hmm. um, Bratton's new program, uh, mm -hmm. forgive me the name, the uh, this ancient Greek yeah. clock. Antikythera. Antikythera, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that's a perfect example of like you get a stipend to go there, you get rigorous research, speakers, you just have the time and space to think about a problem deeply. Thank you, Bagrun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah, it. but that's a great use of Bagrun funding, I think. I also just want to say, and I know we have to get on the boat, yeah, I mean, I think that the this hypothetical art sales example is such a niche case. Like most artists I know are not thriving. Yeah. You know, yeah. and from that $10,000 sale, they're getting $5,000 and maybe there's one of those like every quarter. You know, yeah. it's not, this is not the mass case for like contemporary artists. 
once again, which is why like having a bedroom brand is probably going to be right. a little bit more, mm. more profitable. I mean, even if you're like an artist who has like a big show at like, I don't know, like a sub blue chip gallery, but let's say you sell $300,000 worth of work, but you're going to take home 150000 of that. And then you have studio costs, production costs or whatever. So maybe that's $70,000. And then like that $70,000 has to last you for the next two years, yeah. unless you're doing multiple shows at different galleries. So that is not that, I mean, it's, it's fine, but it's not like gangbusters. You're definitely better off as a plumber. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are. Not to say, it's <laughs> right, your, yeah. right. Yeah, it's surreal how it actually it's breaks true. down. It is, yeah, right. Yeah. It's super expensive, yeah. but then it, like, it takes a year to produce the right. show or two years to produce the show, and so the take-home is actually having to spread it out over that time frame. Mm-hmm. Right, not a right, right, right. Yeah. Well, Should we eat some food? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Parting words? No. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.